Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy Bar Chat Podcast. This is Tristan Stevenson. On this episode, I am talking to Grace Ramirez and Ryan Chetia-Wardner. Grace is a well-known TV chef in the US, having appeared on MasterChef, which won her a scholarship to the French Culinary Institute in New York. She has written two cookbooks, appeared on many TV shows, and is an active supporter of numerous relief efforts throughout the world for Haiti, Puerto Rico, and Venezuela, working with the World Central Kitchen, Niestros Pequenos Hermanos World Child Cancer, Womenkind and Wellness in Schools, among many other organizations. Ryan, also known as Mr. Lion, is one of the most highly regarded bar professionals on the planet. He has opened a number of groundbreaking bars in London, Amsterdam, and most recently Washington, including White Lion, Dandelion, and Super Lion. If you haven't heard of him, where have you been? He has been the recipient of countless awards and accolades and has published two books on food and drink. Now, in this episode, we discuss the broad-ranging topic of flavour. We talk about early memories of flavour, where flavour inspiration comes from, good and bad flavours, multi-sensory flavour, seasonality, food systems and sustainability, and much, much more. This is a super insightful chat with a couple of really, really great guests. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, Ryan and Grace, welcome to the Bar Chat Podcast. Thank you. Hello, guys. This is awesome. We got a whole lot of flavor here. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I asked for, and that's what you're bringing, so that's fantastic. Um, we're going to get into that. So, um, Ryan, we've known each other years and years, um, and we'll get to that. Grace, we've never met before, and um, that's a shame because we're doing this remotely. Um, but we will make that happen. But I was uh, Instagram stalking you earlier, um, just as part of my research <laughs> program. <laughs> just to clarify. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Just, yeah. I wonder what Grace gets, does it? Um, and oh my, you, I mean, you're a chef and wow, like there are some amazing pictures of food on your Instagram feed. I very much encourage you, Ryan, when this is over or indeed while we're doing it to get to Grace's, what is it? Uh, Grace Ramirez, chef. At Chef Grace Ramirez. Yeah. yeah. I want to be a curator of pure deliciousness. You know, I want people to see my Instagram <laughs> and just be inspired and moved. And like, I want that. I want to go there and I want to see that. And, and I mix like, yeah, like art and flavor and, you know, yeah, my cooking and um, a lot of my, you know, social responsibility projects that I do around the world. So it's a little bit of everything, but it is, it is, I, I finally came to that word, you know, a curator of pure deliciousness. And that's what I highlight there basically. So tell me this, like you're, so you're a child model. Uh, how, <laughs> how did, how did a child model become like a food expert and someone who was like, you know, wanted to cook and create great food for a living? You know, I grew up in Venezuela and, and in Venezuela, basically back then when I grew up, I, I was born in Miami, but raised in Venezuela. And uh, and now my mother lives in Mexico. So it's 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 beautiful um, to get this all this Latin background. Uh, but when I grew up, everyone was Miss Universe. <laughs> or you wanted to be Miss Universe. And it was quite frustrating because um, I never felt like like I was that kid who was a model, but because my family worked in the industry, 
um, in, you know, they were doing commercials and soap operas back then. So they will put me in all the little commercials and I will be that kid, like, you know, cotton candy, la la la, like singing. Uh, and I loved it. I loved it. But I grew up and I wasn't Miss Universe. I wasn't tall enough. I wasn't beautiful enough, according to. I love the cat. I love that we have a cat. I told you he was loud. I love it. No, I love it. I have, I have my parents' dog, but I'm glad that he's, she's behaving right now. Um, no. So anyways, really quickly, I was in Miss Universe and I said, well, I'm not going to be that, but I'll become the best director producer I can because I love the, the industry. And then I started working at MTV, Nickelodeon, and then the Food Network. And when I direct a show for, chef bobby flay who's a very famous uh chef in the u.s who i absolutely adore who's like my mentor and and i said i really want to become a chef um so that's how it kind of all changed <laughs> right so and what age were you when you started when you went to culinary school i was 30 oh was wow 30. so you're a late bloomer into this really uh, yeah yep yep uh and i love talking about it because one of the things that I do is is uh, mentor women, and I'm part of We NYC, which is about women empowerment and women entrepreneurs of New York City. Where I'm, uh, I'm a mentor to women in New York, and I talk about that a lot because a lot of people are afraid to make a career change so late in the game, mm. quote unquote, so late in the game. And I and I did it, and I was very afraid for a while. I was, um, I you know, I all my savings went to culinary school and and putting myself through that process. But it all worked out. So I, I talk about that a lot. Yeah, that was 10 years ago. <laughs> wow. Well, it's going well for you, obviously. Um, <laughs> and, I've worked and, very hard, I have to say. <laughs> it's no um, coincidence. Ryan, you're, I know you've come from quite a kind of food-orientated family, and it's sort of in your blood, really. Not to say it isn't in, in, in yours as well, but Ryan, you've... You've you've kind of been doing this since day dot, really, haven't you? Um, what's your like earliest memory of flavor and being inspired by it and wanting to sort of manipulate it? Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was certainly a big part of of what we were surrounded by growing up, and like even I I, I talk about like the practicalities of working kitchens and being essentially labor for for my mum when we were growing up, and she was cooking for like whatever. Uh, feast before she did anything professional with it um, but I think the like the first time I really thought about it was you know from we must have been like four when we were all kind of like thrown into the kitchen and were cooking alongside mum and one of the things that I really think about is um, is baking which is hilarious because I'm a terrible baker now and you know don't don't follow any sort of, of guidelines and 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 yeah really really can't bake for for anything it's but probably because you don't follow the guidelines well yeah it really doesn't work for baking when you don't do that <laughs> um but you know there's, there's very much a, a single thing where there's there's a cake at, at every gathering every opportunity every every chance to be around other people there's a cake that magically appears and i think it was it was learning well eating cake batter as as a kid <laughs> that is certainly one of the ones that is is very visceral as a memory um but i think the the idea of understanding the way that you put things together very simple ingredients and it transformed into something i think that was the i suppose the catalyst of a lot of my interest in in all of this um was was kind of seeing my mum bake cakes and throw very kind of humble stuff together and it, it coming out that would seem like alchemy and magic to to a four-year-old kid 
Um, it is. So, it is pretty magical, really, it, isn't it? it is, yeah. Um, you know, flour, flour, sugar, butter, and eggs, and you have something that's like totally magical, especially to a, a child's palate. Um, so yeah. I, I, that, that was probably it. I mean, we were very fortunate to be exposed to lots of, of lots of different flavors. You know, our parents took us everywhere. We weren't the kind of kids that were left at home while the, the kind of parents went out. So, you know, we ate a very kind of diverse selection of things from a young age. And I think that really set the seeds for, for I suppose, all of, of what's happened since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I think it's such an important time when you're young, sort of between the ages of, I guess, four and 10. You sort of seem to establish so much of your, like, flavor dictionary or, you know, you, you're sort of compiling this selection of flavors that stay with you for the rest of your life. And, and that's why I think sort of certain sweets or candies, cakes, um, are so the flavors are so nostalgic as an adult, mm-hmm. and you know because because it just transports you back to that time when you're like, oh, it's the most delicious, tasty, you know that you know bonbon or army navy sweets. Yeah, or... yeah, it's, it's quite funny with those as well because I remember it was around like 2008, 2009, probably around when we met actually, and I was doing some whiskey notes for 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 a Japanese whiskey company. And I wrote them all and they were like, none of this will translate. It's all like nostalgic references to like strawberry laces and banana foam sweets and, you know, all of those kind of like childhood sweets that Mm. are very hyper specific to kind of my childhood and growing up in in the UK. Um, And, you know, there, there are certainly those references in a peer group and of a generation but they don't translate into different countries that well (laughs) the problem is of course that spirits have got a lot of these esters in them that are like present in pretty much raw form in candies and sweets aren't they so it's no accident that when you smell a whiskey or a rum or something you go damn that smells like cough candy because like they're they're basically extracting the ester that produces cough candy flavor from probably from a fermentation distillation process not dissimilar to that in which the rum is made yeah um so it's this is why why i'm into spirits really is i get to be a kid all over again you know (laughs) (laughs) you know i really love the the part that you know taste is psychological flavor is not because it's how you process it that it's makes the whole difference right how you grew up and and, and, you know, and your childhood and your taste bud and how exposed you were to different flavors. I, I feel like I was the same. Like I was super exposed to so many flavors from when I was young, you know, growing up in Venezuela, you would have lamb from New Zealand and brief cheese from France and, and paella from Spain. And then on Sundays we would have, you know, bolognese and, and we would have literally Taco Tuesday. So I grew up like that. And I grew up with a very tough mother who was, she would make me eat everything and a very loving grandmother, but, and, and some from a huge family who all cooked. Um, my grandfather would wake me up at 6am to go to school and he would make coffee and the whole house would smell like coffee. But then he would also have the, you know, the pressure cooker going on for that shredded beef for, for, um, for lunch going. And he would, helped my grandmother a lot in the kitchen. So my house always smelled like food, literally from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. It would always smell like food because it was always like a revolving door of, because my grandmother was an amazing cook and my grandfather as well, a revolving door of just 
cousins and uncles and friends and and ex-husbands like always the ex-husbands stuck around <laughs> brilliant lured back like, in yeah. by the taste of the yeah, food i love it literally yeah i never understood the roles of exes because it was like did they get a divorce They're like yeah it's okay you know they just keep coming back for lunch it's fine i'm like okay <laughs> That is one of the cool things about flavor, isn't it? Because it does sort of draw, it does create lines of connection, like synapses between what you're producing now and your own past. So the things that have influenced your journey with flavor over the years, be that your childhood or more recent influences, even like tasting a whiskey, for example. Um, But it also links you to cultures as well, right? Because you sort of draw these lines to traditions in this place or a particular ingredient in that place. Um, I mean, is that something that you think about very much? I absolutely do that. Like, I I think that I am, you know, I've been privileged enough for my mother to have left pretty much everywhere in Latin America. And I've I've lived in a lot of different places myself. And I think that that only opens up your palate and your Mm. mind and the way you and the way you put flavors together. Right. Like I remember my trip to Thailand. changed a lot of things for me like how the sweet and spicy and 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 don't get me wrong we have in latin america that but there was something about thailand um that took it to another level right of that um combination of always making sure you have that sweet and spicy and they put sugar in everything (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's delicious but at the same time they balance it properly and i think that that's something that is very important food um, that I always talk about. It's about balance of flavors. Like you don't want anything to be too overly sweet or too overly spicy or, um, or too overly salty. Mm. Um, and, and I think that that's very important. And the more you open your palate to different cultures, the more literally your palate is opened. Therefore you're able to be a better, a better cook. Yeah, absolutely. So would you say that your inspiration from flavor for flavor and the stuff that you're cooking now, the recipes you're writing, is purely kind of Latin American or are you drawing from global flavors? I mean, you just mentioned Thailand then. Yeah, no, I'm I'm drawing. I mean, my first cookbook, which was the one that um, kind of were, I I hate using this word because it sounds funny, but but, uh, I think that La Latina is the name of my cookbook, right? And it's it's called La Latina is the Latin girl. Um, I wanted to be very proud of that, and and especially in in the political climate that we were in. And uh, you know, I, I'm a voice for Latin women in general. I mentor um, a lot. I teach a lot. So I wanted to carry that flag uh, very in a very humble way, but in a very proud way. Um, so obviously. I I always tend to go back to Latin flavors, but I went to the French Culinary Institute in New York. I have spent a lot of time in Italy um, cooking and in Mexico as well. I came back from Africa where um, I was super inspired by the cuisine uh, there because I I didn't, I mean, I, I came back from Rwanda, but the year before I had been to Ethiopia. And when you travel, you just find different ways to do even the same dishes differently, right? Better techniques or add something that you would normally add and and just be more, you know, adventurous when it comes to cooking. I, I love cooking Latin food because I think that just like we were talking earlier, right, there's still a lot of misconceptions about 
what is Latin food? You know, is it rice? Is it beans? Is it tacos? Is it quesadillas? Is it fajitas? Is it burritos? And it's like, well, guys, there's a continent <laughs> yeah. from Mexico to Patagonia where we have a very um, var- huge variety of different cuisines. Like Peru, for example, is a culinary mecca and, in, in, you know, in, in I, I still go to Peru and I, I'm still like my stepfather is from there. And I'm like, holy cow. Like I have never, ever had anything quite like this because a lot of times when you go to Europe, you're like, Oh, I've had something similar before in so-and-so country. But in Peru, for example, and here in Mexico as well, um, I'm like, I have never had anything quite like, I don't even know what's in here. Like I can't even pinpoint what what I'm eating, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like I love talking about Latin American flavors, but yeah, I can I can the only cuisine that I'm really not comfortable even touching it's Japanese because I'm like that it's like a different set of skills. Um, I can make a very rustic roll, <laughs> but but I'm not comfortable with it. You know, I'm very intimidated by it. Do, but, do you like to eat it? I love it. I love oh. Japanese food. Ryan, where do you, um, is there any sort of single experiences or places that you feel have like hugely influenced your use of flavor or approach to flavor? I think it's probably more people than it is places because I think places, I mean, we all love, you know, I think what Grace talked about in the, the amazingness of traveling. And I think there is like the camps of both seeing the way that people, um, I suppose, represent things that are very familiar, you know, those same pillars of, of, you know, basic palate of the way that people use sourness, saltiness and fattiness, all of those things um, is, is really interesting. And you can be inspired by seeing a culture's approach to those. And then there's those things that you just go, well, I've never tasted anything like this. And yeah. particularly my trips, my limited trips to um, like even Australia or, or Central America, I've never actually been to, to South America um, and you taste things that you can't kind of correlate. Mm. And, and you know, those those trips through travels and they kind of blow your mind and it, it like expands the way that you look at ingredients, how you process them and, and what potentially you can create. But I think a lot of the things uh, amongst my travels have been kind of meeting people in amongst those cultures and they're they're almost doing something know building on that culture mm. but skewing it in their own way as well um and it's you know you you come across ways of processing ingredients ways of 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 looking at the land um and there's been a number of people that i think have, have, have suppose shocked my outlook into thinking about it in a slightly different way um and it's been from you know the what we we both met uh, Ariel very early mm. in the early days when she was still UC Davis um, and you know understanding somebody who was taking a wine background but being a food scientist and looking at ways of processing flavor um, and you know it, I think it resonated with both of us of going well there, there are other ways of doing this both crossing in different cultural approaches but also just understanding the fundamentals to hack it um, and I think that's that's been a massive influence on um, uh, not only where I look to ingredients, but how to to use them as well. Um, you know, it's I I will always be inspired by kind of seeing a cultural approach and and kind of seeing 
the the kind of traditional ways to to explore a cuisine, how to bring people together. That I suppose the the cultural um, like uses of food and drink as as a kind of societal thing, um, but also then that kind of individual. I'm just going to throw over the rules and and kind mm. of take on a very different approach to it. Mm. Um, and you, you see that all around the world, and it's it's such a lovely thing to connect with. Is you know you see people from from scientists to distillers to chefs to um, you know farmers who are are trying to find new ways of of exploring things. And and I, I feel very fortunate to have, have encountered those people all around the world. Yeah, it's I guess it's like a combination of innovation and tradition, right? Um, yeah. Which is a, a, a lot like, I mean, it sort of reminds me a bit of what you did at Dandelion with the menu there, the cocktail menu, where it was sort of drawing upon sort of traditional botanical uses, uses of plants, medicinal qualities, all this kind of like stuff that's some of it been going on for thousands of years. But then, you know, to steal your own term, hacking it uh, mm-hmm. in, in order to create interesting flavor combinations. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, th- I think it's a, it, um, you know, it's it's a very human way in which we use information, isn't it? You you build on what's come before, and you you kind of cross pollinate it. Um, I suppose a bit of a pun there, but not like. <laughs> um, um, but it was always interesting to me to to look at the like. You know, I've I've always loved the traditional aspects, and I think there's so much that can still be explored by those. And you know, the fact that we've we've touched on nostalgia, and we've we've talked about those things that were important to us all growing up um but there are also things that i i feel are, are you know more universal and there's still plenty to explore in them but you know it's it's how do we bring those into the modern day how do we um make that relevant to a current audience mm. and you know that's that's all of us splicing together and being influenced by fashions and all of those changes um and also then trying to create something new because you know as creatures we're, we're constantly seeking that you know i think a big part of flavor and deliciousness and um excitement is is like being spurred on by something new so i think it's still really important to to look at that balance of the traditional and the innovative yeah although it's, i'd say it's new but it's in some ways familiar right totally. you want a sort yeah. of a grounding point to that new thing but then it needs to elevate it to be ex- you know something exceptional uh, to the norm, yeah. right? Yeah, I, I don't think it can be like weird is scary, <laughs> <laughs> especially scary when you're putting it in your mouth, right? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. It's not gonna. Isn't the first thing that comes to mind is not delicious when it's like freaking you out. So yeah. it's it's got to be grounded in something. Um, I, I think I, I use comedy as a as, as a um, like an analog for it a lot of the time because you know it has to build on the past, but it's you almost can't go backwards. Like you can reference it, but you know, that there's this constant movement and you know, if it's not, if it's not grounded in something that people can relate to and understand, like that's where you lose your audience. Mm. And so it's really important that you, you do make it relevant. You make it something that um, feels, feels approachable and universal. I think Mm. that's really important. But do you think this is again a bit of maybe a bit of a weird question? But like you say, people are looking for something new and exciting, um, and you know you've you've done a fantastic job of giving that to people for the last ten years. Keep opening venues, keep creating you know super innovative cocktail lists that are delicious. But like 
is it possible to keep up with that pace of innovation? And is it the right pace? You know, because is, is the pace of innovation defined by what people want and how quickly they want new stuff? Or is it more defined by, you know, PR and media and the need to be constantly innovating and doing something new just so you appear to be relevant? Well, I think there's got to be a balance. Like, I think a lot of the stuff that we've pushed is to try and, I suppose, legitimize innovation and show that it has a place at the table alongside the traditional. And it's never been about casting off the old. It's mm. about saying that they need to coexist. Um, and I think what we need to see is a little bit more, you know, innovation should be quite subtle. It's not about having something like um, shocking because then that becomes a gimmick. Mm. Um, it's actually, it's about building in a more, I suppose, like a metered pattern as you go forward. And, you know, innovation can be really simple. It can just be presenting something in a different way. It doesn't need to be revolutionary in terms of, of, of what it is. Um, but I think, a lot of the, if you look at something like modern art, that um, and make another British reference, but like if you look at the um, young British artists, uh, like spearheaded by like you know Hearst and um, Tracy Emin and Co, um, a lot of that work felt very shocking because it was trying to jolt people out of a traditional world. It was trying to shift that canon, and I think after that period when it became quite mainstream to understand kind of contemporary art in a different way, it's softened. You know, mm. people aren't now trying to bludgeon you over the head with like Chapman Brothers-esque shocking imagery. It's it's more about, um, and I like the Chapman Brothers, but I think it's like, it, it, it's about um, finding something that feels like it's taking everyone on a journey. And I think it's the same thing with flavor. We're trying, like we, we had to show those extremes to, to kind of give the landscape. And now it's, it's a little bit more normalized and it, it's a bit more, you know, thankfully everybody's trying to create in a way that includes everyone. You know, these are shifts that we're trying to make around um, not just flavor, but like food systems. Um, and it's, it's really important that it feels relevant and feels accessible to people. Yeah, that's a good segue because I was going to ask something about um, sustainability. And I know that you've been a huge not even really champion, but I'd say an instigator in the industry around this whole topic. So how do we go about sort of linking together flavor, seasonality, sustainability into a kind of complete saleable package to people? Um, I think I think it's just, it's, it's education. I think, you know, it, we've almost touched upon this as we've been talking through our experiences of flavor as, as a group. Um, you know, the idea of connecting to the people behind it is, is a massive step, like understanding the value of our food and seeing the fact that it is, um, you know, it's constantly evolving, but it's grounded in traditions and also like shifting. It's not something that's static. Um, that in itself, I think the education around that and around our food is, is the major step towards sustainability. You know, everybody wants, like nobody wants to, buy food that means that a farmer is is like starving mm. and nobody wants to kind of support systems that um either undermine communities or undermine the, the 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 environment and so the more that we can kind of open up and 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 kind of give a, a transparency to what's going on i think the more that this topic will become relevant inclusive um and much more um 
addressable. It'll allow mm. us to actually take on those topics in a in a, in a kind of really meaningful way. Yeah, sure. I, I want to add to that. I think that you know, I I lived in New Zealand for four years, and I it completely shifted me as a as a cook because I understood seasonality. And I think when it comes to cocktails and when it comes to food. We as chefs and as as mixologists, we have a responsibility to to really own up to that. Like, do not be buying blueberries from Chile um, all year round because it's not okay. <laughs> mm. Because it's not it's not supporting the local economy. It's not supporting seasonality. And then, if you really think about the environmental impacts of what that does, it's it's awful. So. We really have to start thinking about food and cocktails in a more seasonal way. I remember chatting with with Nuno Mendez, who's who's always been a, a, a big inspiration to me. But you know, he was doing some work with um, schools, and he was feeding schools. And Dan Gusti, who's who was um, ex Noma, and when he was doing Brigade, he talked about the same thing: is like kids have like sophisticated palates. We're just not talking to them in in like a we we just presume a certain level of interest and education, all these things. But it's it's at that stage we're not we're not teaching people the value of food. And you know, it goes back to as a biologist, I'm obviously very passionate about this, but it links to flavor, it links to deliciousness. You know, we we look to, you know, what is delicious is also what's what's beneficial to us. And you know, you you're talking about seasonality and we're eating strawberries, they're not delicious. And you know we're we're changing this. They like, look good, but that's about it, right? Yeah, and you know it's it's this big thing where we've you know both in terms of like if you look at the way that we feed um, like different socioeconomic groups, the way that we transport mm. ingredients, it's not if we focus in on the idea that deliciousness is actually something that should be for everyone, and we get people to think about where their ingredients come from, the value of their food, how they process it, the idea that looking after people is a very like wonderful like um satisfying thing for folk then i think it's you know it, it links all those things together and yeah. you know seasonality is is a massive thing that we need to teach people about and and the connection to our land is 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 really important and it, it's a massive factor in in flavor and deliciousness and and that also links to nutrition and sustainability um so it, it, it's it's really crucial that we push that education well, I mean, you could say that if you, you know, tell people that it's good to eat delicious things and to eat nutritious things, then in a way, those pieces will sort of fall into place, right? If that's your kind of primary goal, which really it should be, okay, yeah. deliciousness and nutrition, then you're eventually going to end up in a situation where you are sourcing seasonally um, yeah. and, and, um, and, you know, sustainability will follow with that as well food systems will improve it feels like it feels like a lot of this is just a return to older values right it's like we kind of with the industrial revolution we sort of went a bit wayward and um you know started mass producing things and you know food became global um in respect of the systems that produce it and ship it for us and store it and can it and dehydrate it and all this kind of thing and now we're kind of realizing actually that's not not really the best way to to organize this. We need to have a you know a, a more local approach and a more seasonal approach and a more sustainable approach that's fair for everyone. I, I, I do agree, and it's certainly like a big pillar of that education. But 
Um, at the same time, I love being able to drink tequila and being able to drink, um, yeah. you know, Japanese whiskey and being able to have ingredients that um, have come from different parts of the world. We are a linked world, but it's not that the world can't feed everyone. We can't have delicious things and you still can't respect people and the environment. I think we just need to support the right kind of people and the right kind of producers. Mm. So that's where I say it's like it still comes back to the education part because it is feasible to have those things. We don't need to sacrifice our whole worldview to be sustainable and to um, to kind of prioritize deliciousness. We just need to not be greedy and we also need to value our food at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. Grace, what don't you like? What flavors do you not like? What was just horrible, <laughs> disgusting stuff? I, you know, I like I like pretty much everything, and I am that girl that eats sweetbreads and brains and tongue, and and I go hunting <laughs> with the boys for for um, you know New Zealand. I would, I would be hunting for for deer, and and I love to butcher, and uh, I am that girl. One, I, I don't, I don't, I think I'll come back to that because it's it's very rare that I don't like something. I think I think that the one thing that it's hard for me to eat are the but it depends on how they're prepared are um the the feet of the pig when oh. they're too gelatinous and when I like them pickled but some uh, and you know in some countries in Latin America people just leave them very 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 um mm. you know like it's too much it's sticky when it's too 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 sticky that you spend there like like half an hour trying to understand what's happening in your mouth that's too much for me uh but when they're pickled i love them i i find the topic of what people find um repulsive really fascinating yeah um and it's it's kind of one of my favorite things when you travel around the world is, you know, there's so much that unites us. And, you know, even when you travel, we talked around like it, this is their interpretation of salt, fat, acid, whatever it might be. Um, but what repulses people, I find really fascinating. Um, because well, it's your I turn. So what repulses you, Ryan? Well, I don't think it's repulses. There are certain things that I don't eat. Um, like the ones that I put on like a restaurant dietary requirements i don't do coffee chili or oysters um coffee is because i go loopy on it and i've taught myself i don't like it um <clears throat> chili is um one that i i struggle with because all my friends call me a t well i am a i am a total worse it's not even that i like struggle You've got with the, the, the lower spice is. tolerance for a sri lankan haven't you exactly <laughs> it's, it's more the cultural thing that like it's yeah it's it's embarrassing how bad i am with chili um and then oysters i don't like metallic flavors um no i love the, oysters yeah like most of my dear friends are like this is the reason why i don't really love you <laughs> i used to say that oysters were like the definition of an acquired taste because the more you eat them the more you like them and you're literally acquiring the taste with every single oyster you have it's, it's that metallic thing though i'm not good with those kind of flavors and i was like there's certain things that I now associate with, like I'm not going to put it on a dietary thing, but I'm not a big fan of like tonk, like cormorant, like tonka um, or woodruff or bison grass. 
like those kind of what I see as quite metallic flavors. Mm. Um, I'm not, I'm not a fan of. Um, is that a, is that a genetic thing that's producing like, or, or you're experiencing a heightened sense of metallic flavor in that? It, because the, I don't get a metallic flavor. I mean, you, you, are you a super taster? No, I have a high PTC reaction, but I'm not a super taster. Um, and I like bitter things, but I, um, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's it. I think it, I put it down to more being association. Mm. Um, but yeah, those those type of flavors. I, um, you know, with the chili, I feel like it's allergic reaction. I, I don't understand it, um, so I like <laughs> physically back away from it. Um, and my sensitivity is very high to that. But um, with the the kind of metallic flavors, I think it's just um, I don't I don't really know. But it's it's oysters are probably bore the 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 kind of pointy end of of my distaste with that i i remember i so i i used to hate mushrooms with a passion so uh, to, to answer oh, wow. my own question i eat pretty much everything but obviously i have um i'm vegetarian so i don't eat meat and fish but i'll eat i'll eat everything and anything mm-hmm. um, i can i can attest to this yeah yeah you see me <laughs> eat some stuff i shouldn't have eaten. um so i used to um hate mushrooms which is problematic if you're a vegetarian, um, because they're the, clo- they're the closest thing, both in sort of taste and biologically, to to meat, <laughs> um, since they're not a plant. Um, and uh, a few years back, I actually trained myself to like mushrooms. And um, I don't know if you remember, Ryan, I was doing a bunch of seminars. This is actually a long time ago. It was, it was 11 years ago. I was doing a bunch of seminars with a scientist who used to work for Unilever in Switzerland he was doing a bunch of seminars and I was talking about vodka um and um he he talked a lot about sort of science of flavor in in very sort of top line kind of terms because he's giving delivering this to bartenders um and one of the things he was talking about was adversions and how for the most part they are environmental um you know you no one's really born disliking these things with few exceptions you know for example like coriander the flavor of or cilantro the fr- the flavor of fresh cilantro there, there there is a genetic predisposition to make it taste like soap basically mm-hmm. and so some people are really put off that because it tastes like soap but even that's sort of environmental to some extent because you know if soap didn't exist you wouldn't know it tastes soapy sure. and you might yeah. just eat it right mm-hmm. yeah um so he 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 yeah he basically said you you've been trained to dislike it through you know a series of events that have taken place which weren't very nice um such as being force fed it as a kid this is usually how we build up these aversions um of course like uh, chili sensitivity would be another one where you know you you, you, you it's not necessarily environmental you just <laughs> just a bit weak in the mouth <laughs> well i actually I, I would argue that it probably is environmental as well um you know we weren't brought up on singalese food Mm. We were brought up with a very British palate, and it probably is into a complex web yeah, of yeah. Um, exposure in that as well. I mean, our dear friend Harper, we've I've had this discussion with him many of times, where you know the balance of nurture and and nature, and I'm I think everything's nurture. You know, there's 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 everything can affect what you're kind of like built up in with in terms of your your I suppose genetic disposition towards because mm. you know I I have two Sri Lankan parents. They both grew up eating spicy food but you know the reason why i often challenge um you know even from my biology days the idea of things being um you know geographically based i think it's more culturally based Mm. i'm culturally british yeah 
And so my my palate association, my exposure, my kind of I suppose environmental influence is 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 way stronger than my biological one. Yeah, sure. No, I mean I think you might be right. That virtually everything in terms of flavor is environmental. I don't know if everything everything to do with your behavior <laughs> is environmental. And I I in fact I, I'm pretty sure that's not true. Um, because I have two children who were brought up almost identically and in the same way, and they are very different human beings. Um, of course. So, anyway, um, I digress a little bit. So, yeah, you can you can learn to dislike food, and of course, most of these adversions are uh, generated and built up during childhood. You get to your teenage years, and you're probably at your early teens. You're at peak dislike, right? You've got about half of the whole f- like spectrum of food is off the table, right? <laughs> I'm not touching that. I'm not touching that. Right, and then as you become an adult, you you suddenly learn to um, overcome a lot of these things, and that's again environmental. You know, you find yourself in good company, and you want to try something. You want to be part of that club that's eating an oyster, or you know, yeah. enjoying <laughs> foie gras, whatever it might be. And so you slowly kind of slip back, you know, regain these sort of lost preferences which you were born with. Um, and uh, yeah, so you can undo this work that was done to you as a child by slowly integrating this food back in. And and really, the only the, the only trick was it, it, so he reckons you do it in eight sessions. Um, so you need to eat the food eight times, and each session has to be a very positive experience. So it might be like dinner with friends or family, um, and then slowly you you add more of the ingredient into the dish. As time goes on, it, it doesn't have to be a secret. Is there? Can I can I challenge this? Yeah. So I I do agree with the sentiment, but at the same time, I think it's you know how social food is. Mm. Um, and if you think about the places you've travelled to and your fears, you've been freaked out by a certain thing. And I remember talking with a friend's dad about when he was an engineer and working over uh, in China, and them being kind of pretty freaked out by black pudding. Um, yet they're yeah, having, well. you know, blood used in, in various different stews and things. And so I think, you know, when you're in a certain circumstance and you're exposed to something and, you know, as creatures, as social creatures, you want to fit in. Mm. And so something that you might have been slightly put off by in the past, you don't want to appear the weirdo. And so you partake in it, you overcome that fear and you realize actually the thing that put you off it was the weirdness of it. And that's what I was saying about like being intrigued by what repulses people, you know, cheese is a pretty weird thing. If you think about it, um, you know, objectively, and yet, you know, you go to cultures that don't have it, you expose people to it and they're like, Oh, it's delicious. You know, I didn't think I would like it, but I do like it. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you can thrust people into um, those circumstances and they help, help them understand the context, you know, you, you, you see people, trying to think of something weird and, and the difficulty is i don't find that much stuff weird so i'm really bad at coming up with examples of it but actually so when we were in mexico we ate ant larvae tacos oh yeah i remember those yeah 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 because that's a strange flavor it's a strange flavor and you know it was super you know, umami right it was like massively so meaty like mm. incredibly rich 2008 you know like, particularly brits nobody had been really exposed to eating kind of insects that much um but it was it was normalized it wasn't that they were it was a gimmick it wasn't something that was there to to freak out the the white folk you know it was there to be like you know this is celebrated it's delicious this is something that we want you to partake in because we're really proud of it and it changed the context and Mm. it meant that it wasn't something that um 
you know, if you have an aversion to something, I think, you know, you can, you can suddenly be like, you don't need that constant exposure. You can suddenly just, you know, the beauty of traveling that we've all talked about is you gain different perspectives. Yeah. And so being there, being surrounded by it, having it in that cultural context, it no longer becomes weird. Yeah, no, I think we're on the same lines here, definitely. Um, I mean, maybe it won't take eight sessions for you to learn to like something. It could be done what? in one, potentially. Yeah. But, you know, if you're not, it, it depends on what, what situations you're exposed to and what the context is. But, you know, if perhaps you leave a pretty dull life and you're not, not, you know, you're not traveling or this kind of thing and you just sat there in your kitchen at home on your own trying <laughs> to get to like mushrooms, uh, <laughs> it might take eight sessions, you know. Sure. And, um so I, I, do you think there's any, I mean, Grace, you've already said you like everything. So I guess your answer to this is going to yeah, be no. I, that you were talking about escamoles, which I absolutely love, uh, tacos escamoles, which is the, uh, did you guys have chapulines, the, the grasshoppers? Yeah. 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 That, that, that before. Did you like easier? I, I don't think that no. felt quite so. Um, Not as strong a flavor. Yeah. I think it was that as well. And it's kind of, you know, you. Uh, particularly around kind of like European eating, you don't tend to like see the full creature and anything like that. <laughs> but like you know, the 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 full grasshoppers wrapped in a um a, in a taco, then then that made that much easier. Mm. Um, so yeah, that mm. didn't feel quite so weird. Yeah, totally. Mm. Do you think, guys, that there are any foods or flavors, or let's extend this to like combinations of flavors? Maybe we shouldn't actually, because that might get, that might be too easy. That are objectively bad. Like no one should like the taste of this. What is wrong with you if you do? Kind of thing. <laughs> well, I don't think I don't think. I mean, again, it's it's up to ever each individual, right? And I I talk about this a lot because I think um, you know I come from a French culinary institute, so there was a lot of no's, um, like especially around wine and food and what you should and shouldn't and at the end of the day is i think food is like art it's so subjective you some people might like it some people not, not like it there's obviously things that are much better when they're combined um so but you know what i really don't think that should exist mint and chocolate <laughs> mint and chocolate combination really? i get so upset I, I genuinely dislike it. I'm like, mint by itself is great. Chocolate by itself is great. I, I love, I, I personally love like a very dark chocolate, 70% plus. I'm, I'm addicted to that. As a matter of fact, I always have, should be around here, my 70% um, chocolate that I have like one little square a day. But like Whoa. mint and chocolate, that's, I'm that's like, some why? That's some self-restraint right now. One square a day of 70%. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> wow do you know what mint mint i don't know i don't know if it's the same in in uh, the u.s and elsewhere but mint mint and chocolate flavored ice cream is very oh. popular i was gonna say in my total trash degree um it's it's one of my favorite ice creams is um mint chocolate chip ice cream it's like a um, there's a lot of green food coloring in there right 100 percent. it's got to be toxic green um <laughs> I, well Ryan, it's... you don't eat chilies <laughs> and you're okay with like yeah. chocolate and orange and other chocolate fruit or oh yeah combinations chocolate and orange chocolate and ginger okay. that's fine oh, chocolate and mint, mint i'm not sad about 
Fair enough. My wife hates chocolate and mint, actually. I remember on, on a very early part of our relationship, I, I went into a, a petrol station, gas station, and um, yeah. came back with a, two bars of mint chocolate. And I was like, oh, yeah. my God, these things are so good. And she was like, I hate mint and chocolate you see i'm like i'm like i am like your wife i i really truly dislike it i heard um i don't know whether anything ever came of this but i remember years ago they were saying talk there was chat that the the metallic flavor maybe um become the sixth this sixth isn't it taste sensation so we've got salt sweet sour bitter umami and yeah, they're, the, they're, the meaty kakumi kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't think any, anything ever came of it. Because if you think about it, you can't, you can't smell that me- metal taste, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Which sort of suggests it has to be... Oh, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> it has to be a taste sensation. Otherwise, how would you be detecting it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and the... It was actually interesting when we did the the bone dry martini at um, at White Lion. Somebody came in and talked about. They were like, they referenced the kakumi effect of it. They were like, there's a there's a meatiness. Mm. Um, I never got that, but it was interesting because they picked up there being like distinct from being a savoriness. It wasn't umami. Yeah, yeah. it was a meatiness. Mm. Um, and. You know, I, I found that really interesting, the fact that they talked about... Do you want to just explain that drink quickly, actually, Ryan? Yeah, um, so it was a a, a vodka martini um, that we created for White Lion, our original bar. Um, and it was um, exploring the idea of the texture of vodka, not adding kind of vermouth to have a, a dry martini or anything like that. It was it was playing on the idea of a bone-dry martini. So it was it was just the spirit at its heart. Um, but then we used a bone tincture, which was taking organic, organic chicken bones that we roasted and then dissolved in an inorganic acid and dosed into the drink. And the, the effect was around the idea of minerality. And like, to me, it was about this kind of Burgundian style flintiness down the middle of the palate that dried your mouth out, both using the acidity and using the minerals in dissolved from, from the bone. Um, so it, it technically contained bone, um, and by using the bone in which we did, it probably had some amino acids in there. I mean, I don't know enough about chemistry to understand what um, phosphoric acid is going to strip out of, of, of a pounded bone, um, but it was it was a really interesting response to see people kind of talk about both the minerality, but also experiencing something like this kind of kukumi effect. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, that certain people can detect that metallic note mm-hmm. and, you know, without prompting, presumably. Um, yeah, totally. And that's that, that, and that, that's their interpretation of it. And it's sort of, it, I mean, yeah, like I say, it goes. So let's get onto this. Can you smell sweet? Right? Can you smell salt? <laughs> this has been so. This has been so for everyone that's listening. One is going on. This has been a debate that's been going back and forth between myself, Ryan, and a few others. Um, Craig Harper, who's been on the podcast, actually, it was him and I up in um, Isla that originally kickstarted this debate about seven or eight years ago. Now, here, here, I'll give I'll give my opening statement on the on the matter, and then I'll allow you guys to uh, to to retort. Um. My my understanding of flavor science is that you've got your taste sensation and you've got which which is refi- confined to your tongue, 
Um, and the tongue doesn't just do taste. So it does salt, sour, sweet, bitter, umami. But of course, the tongue does lots of other things as well. It detects temperature and the rest of the mouth. The temperature, it detects the viscosity. Um, you know, it detects uh, how, how smooth or lumpy something is. It detects um, how fresh or crisp or whatever um, it, it is. Um, and then you've got, you've got smell, um, which, as most of us sort of know, does a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of flavor. Not, I, don't think, I think it's overstated how much smell does. Um, I, think, I think that the mouth does a lot. Um, but, uh, yeah, smell, smell is really important. And um, in, my, in my opinion, the definition of something that you can taste, salt, sour, sweet, bitter, umami, is something that you can't smell. They don't have a smell to them. Uh, that's kind of the whole point. If you smell salt in a pot, doesn't smell anything of anything. Or if it does smell of anything, then it may just be sort of trace impurities that are present within the salt. Likewise with sugar. Likewise, if you get hold of some, you know, powdered citric acid or, or indeed any other acid, doesn't smell of anything. When we're describing how things smell, a lot of the times people are drawn towards using sweet as a descriptor. So it smells of caramel or it smells of vanilla or it smells of chocolate or it smells of ripe fruit. Well, it smells sweet. My argument is this. It doesn't smell sweet. You're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It smells of things that you associate with sweetness, like caramel and all these other things. But that's not sweetness you're smelling. It's just things that, that tend to coincide with sweetness. Um, but it's the the linguistic. I suppose there's the linguistic part, and then there's the the experience part. So um, Charles, a good friend who who you've worked with plenty in the past as well. Like you know the the work he did on Charles um, Spence. This is yeah. Sorry, Charles Spence. Yeah. yeah. Um, on on the kind of confluence of our senses. You know, one of his key ones was eating crisps, and you know they're fresh by the sound they make when you bite them. Like it was a, a seminal study of his, um, and can you hear freshness? And the answer is yes. And in the same way, it's, it's like, you know, you can be tricked by any of your senses. You know, we know this in terms of you can manipulate any of the basic senses to to you know do whatever you want them to do. But um, you your experience of smelling something that is sweet linking up like proves the truth of it linguistically yes you're not technically smelling the sweetness yes but the experience is there yeah and i agree with you linguistically it may uh, what you're saying makes sense like if i chew on stale popcorn but i have a crunchy sound played in my ears it is to all intent and purposes fresh Mm -hmm. okay but objectively it isn't and objectively (laughs) when you smell something that smells of caramel it ain't sugar you're smelling (laughs) um that is that is one of those things that i'm not gonna even get involved because it's so complex it's all about linguistic and we can be here we can be here talking about that if you smell it smell sweetness but i have to admit that yes you don't technically smell sweetness Cool, I win. Great. That's that. We'll draw a line under that forever. It's go. so good we never have to return to this conversation now, Ryan. Technically and linguistically. Oh, dear. Uh, um, but actually, no, you brought up a good point, though, about sound and smell and texture and temperature. 
so I'm interested, Grace, do you consider things like service wear, the weight of it, the color of it, um, when you're serving a dish and how that influences the flavors of the ingredients that are on the dish? Do you think about sound or, um, you know, do you think about things like the texture of a menu and how that might manipulate someone's perception of what it is they're about to receive, the value of it, that kind of thing? Absolutely. I think that, you know, I last year we did a series of of Sakapa rum dinners and and you know they were paired with Sakapa cocktails and it was I made sure that the setting that everything was curated. Um and it was like and in and, and it was people left the dinner exactly like I wanted them to leave the dinner. They were intoxicated with loves and smells and textures and flavors and, and everything. And for me, texture, textures are very important for me. Like I need that crunch. I need layers of flavor. Um, and I'm a very visual person um, as well. And, and well, as, as you can, well, you guys can't see me, but you too can. I'm a very yeah. intense, passionate person. So I need to translate that into my food. And especially when I'm doing, when I'm doing a dinner, like I want, people to feel the food not only mm. and it's and, and 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 take them to a journey but not in a journey of uh, of a fine dining journey that it's like a story and they tell you it's just kind of like yes i i go through the courses um and we go through the cocktails but at the same time it's just kind of like i let the food and the ambiance and the music and and everything else speak for itself like I don't need to say much and I'll let you kind of experience it because it is, it's kind of like a bite. It's like an explosion of flavors in your mouth and you're like, Oh my God, what am I eating? What am I experiencing? This is, it's like a party in my mouth. <laughs> and then you have a sip of, of, of the cocktail and then you're like, Oh, that just enhanced all these flavors. Um, so for me, it, it is, it is, it is a combination of many things to, to have people go through a journey. Um, and especially because, most of the, the the food that I make and most of the dinners that I make, it is Latin food. So I want them to have a very nice, pleasant experience. And, and to the people who haven't been to Latin American countries, because um, a lot of people haven't, like they've only been to Mexico, um, just kind of like get a little bit of a sense of, of the passion of the temperature of the, the smells of the, uh, of, and yeah, like texture, smell, sound, um, and everything else put in a dish. <laughs> Not ambitious at all. <laughs> but this is it, right? I mean, food is an experience, you know? It's something that kind of appeals to all of the senses. And, like, those senses aren't just limited to what is actually put in your mouth. It's the other sort of ambient things that are going on around it and i love it because you can be like a puppet master like manipulating people from behind <laughs> the curtain like right i'm gonna make you think this then i'm gonna do that and then you're gonna think this is happening um i mean ryan you remember when we worked together at whistling shop we had the emporium there which 100%. which was designed to be this like multi-sensory cocktail experience and we'd have guests come in um, and they would go on this sort of journey through six drinks and they'd have a bit of food with it as well. And it was a small, like tiny little, I wouldn't even call it a private dining room because it was tiny. 
um, just about fit six people into it. And we had complete control over the sound, the lights. We had a, a projector that was putting stuff on the wall. And we also had a system that blasted smells into the room. And, and then we would serve them these drinks and then the server would come in with each cocktail and they would change costume. And so, and the whole room would transform with each cocktail to try and create this sort of almost perfect environment for the consumption of that particular drink. And it was, I mean, you know, we were just kind of shooting in the dark as to what worked and what didn't. There was very little science involved in it. It was just sort of our instincts and where that took us with with each cocktail. But we do like the history of rum, the history of gin, history of whiskey um, over the course of an hour or two. And um, it, it was it was really eye opening to see people's reaction to having this full on sort of sensory experience of of this uh, based around this one glass of drink. It was, I mean, it was also way ahead of its time. Yeah, like it was, um, you know, to be able to bring in technology in that way, um, but also just to to try and create such a visceral experience of it. Ultraviolet, any of those places, it's trying to bring like that full experience to life, how much can you control? And I suppose the tipping point, where does it stop becoming delicious because you're, um, you know, you're prescribing too much. And, you know, just that idea of trying to to explore the full scope of what you can control mm. was, was really interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was, it was difficult because we didn't have, um, as you say, the full understanding of it, but the, the idea of trying to, to create around those that 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 approach was 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 really interesting for the for the time particularly. Yeah, I mean, we had one. I remember that we did the rum one. We had um, that, so it went through the, the history of rum in in sort of by you know every hundred years or so. And one of them was on board. A, it was an, it was like set on a navy ship. We were and we were delivering grog, you know, so like rum, lime, molasses, or sugar topped up with water, some fruit or whatever, and. Um, we were like, right, well, we need, to, we need this to feel like a ship inside this room. So we had had the bow of a ship projected onto this wall, which was right in front of everyone because it was very, a very small room. And we had this sound piped in that was like the creaking of a ship with the waves, bit of seagull kind of... <laughs> and um, then we had sea shanties... You know what do we do in the playing over the top of all of that? So you really felt like you were on a ship, and the, and the light was sort of soft and slightly kind of misty and hazy. And then the server would come in dressed up like a like a you know seaman and um, serve this grog. And then the, we had the smell of gunpowder being piped in through the wall. And um, I'll never forget there was one particular night we were doing this and someone inside the room said i've got to leave i feel seasick <laughs> <laughs> and it was that moment i was like yes we did it <laughs> going back to your original point someone someone felt truly uncomfortable with the situation <laughs> we overstepped the line completely um but it, it sort so of was funny. like where did you get that rum inspiration from yeah it, but it was like it was sort of a a proof of concept that you know we overdid it obviously but that you know you could in a in a static room underground in east london you could make someone feel like they're on a ship mm. so it was it, it, it was a it was a fun experiment <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. So let's sort of start to draw this to close. This has been a fascinating conversation, by the way, guys. Um, I want to sort of finish with asking you both, how can the people listening, our audience, um, improve their understanding of flavor, do you think? What, what steps can they take to kind of grasp flavor in a more useful way that will allow them to be better bartenders or cooks or whatever? Well, I mean, I think about when I used to do um, kind of whiskey tastings with with like young bartenders and they would be like, why? I, you know, you're, talk, you're listing these ingredients like I can't smell these things. Um, and I don't think it's about like sensory arsenal. It's not that people have a better um, mechanics to being able to do these things. It's it's linguistic. It's being able to to kind of associate it and give it um, kind of grounding. So I think a lot of it is is exposure. Like I, I think a big part of like having a broad sense of taste is memory um, and being able to recall those things and associate them. So I think anything that you can do that like trains your memory in that way or kind of helps you understand or put um, wording to what it is. So when you're doing tastings, look at look at it in context of what other people have tasted and see what you experience. Because um, I think it's sometimes difficult to go, cool, I understand that that's vetiver or jasmine or orange or whatever it is. But once you start to, and, you know, of course it's, um, it's complicated that, you know, people often um, converge on these things. So you, you read certain tasting notes and you go, oh, of course, I, I, I see that too. But I think the more you expose yourself to that, the more that you understand how to fix it to language, mm. the more it helps you grow in terms of how you explore flavor. Because as soon as you can like understand what it is, the more you then can start creating bridges, you can create new connections, you can think about how you might draw that particular aspect out of an ingredient, you might connect it to your nostalgia. But until you can hit that language association, it's it's so hard to do. So mm. my my main recommendation for people is to is to taste and expose yourself to everything you can, um, and you know do a bit of critical analysis of it. You know I think everything I encounter in the world as, as a I must look like such a weirdo, but like smelling everything. You know it's it's like you know even your hands after you you kind of like walk down a, a railing or something like that, and you notice. The, the aroma of, of, of well metallic aromas on your hand or you um, you know you, you you notice that somebody has like fried the corn instead of boiled it and you you notice a very different set of flavors the more that you can expose yourself to it more that you can analyze it and critically assess it and then start to um, put words to what it is I think that helps you you grow it enormously I think to summarize it, for me, it's about being really adventurous and curious when it comes to flavor, right? I think that um, obviously when you're in this industry and you, and it, let's say you were not exposed to a lot, like I feel like I have a very um, quote unquote sophisticated palate because I was exposed to many different flavors from early on. And I was, I, I, I was that kid that was forced to eat, not in a bad way, but like my mom would be like, try it. You're not allowed to say no, try it try it and it wasn't until i would try it and and i i do like your theory that you said earlier about trying something several times because 
that um, that is something we used to do with the kids. Maybe you don't like it today, but maybe you would like it tomorrow. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that it is a balance of, of, of certain things. It is a balance of being really adventurous and, and just kind of, um, especially if you're going to be a chef or a mixologist, um, you would do, because I think that these days, um, a mixologist should be like a sommelier, should be able to tell you, look, this cocktail goes beautiful with this food. Uh, and I think that more and more we have to start making that connection. I, I think that that is part of like the evolution of, of having a, I love it when I'm, when I'm in a bar and a mixologist says, you know, what are you, what are you going to eat? Uh, and I can have one cocktail to start off with, but what are you going to eat? And then they say, oh, I recommend you this cocktail with this dish. I love that. And I think that, and, and I think for you to be able to do that, you have to be very adventurous of, of having opening up your palate and saying yes to flavors and saying, you know what, even if I don't love it, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it different ways. And I'm, let's say, for example, I mean, oysters, for example, I'm going to try it with lime and then I'm going to try it with hot sauce and then I'm going to try it. You know, it doesn't have to be oysters, but you get the point of just kind of like really opening up your palate. Do you think, I mean, it feels like we're getting chefs and bartenders getting closer we're we're starting to see more collaborations ryan what you did at cub um was sort of the closest really i've seen the kind of food and drink thing come together the closest i've seen personally anyway and i, I know that there are chefs now who are kind of managing drinks programs in restaurants um is this uh, do, you, do you think this is something we're going to see more of and do you think we're going to see more bartenders gravitating towards food as well and perhaps opening restaurants um, I mean, from from my perspective, um, I, I've never differentiated. I, I I see them as the same thing. Um, food and drink to me are are one and the same. Um, it's you know, if, if I think about the spaces that we create, it's more about trying to find ways of of bringing people together. And food and drink are one of the many tools, alongside the music, the lighting, the atmosphere, all of those things that we're trying to control. Um, and so, to me, it's always been about. You know, I, I think we should be looking to learn from everyone. You know, I think learning from the world's best janitor is as important from learning, you know, the world's best musician, whatever it is. Excellence is, is excellence. Mm. And, you know, I think it's 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 about trying to find things that that help us, um, you know, push those boundaries. And I think the boundary between food and drink was a very self-imposed one from the food and drink world. Um, and the more that we start to see both those worlds grow, you see those worlds blending because it's the reality of the world. You know, you go to any culture in the world, it's not like they're going, cool, the people preparing your food are over there and the people preparing your drinks are over there. You know, you look at natural cultures and they grow up together. You know, if you look at any of the iconic foods of the world, they have their like balanced drink alongside it. And that's not always alcoholic. It's just the fact that, food and drink are one we need to eat and drink as creatures so the more that we celebrate them coming together the more that we look at it as a whole experience the more i think we'll we'll push experiences that feel like more relevant to a wider group of people do you see yourself grace like picking up cocktail shakers more often in the future i, I mean i'm going to be checking your instagram feed going forward <laughs> and i want to see shaken drinks yeah, you know, I am I am the global brand ambassador for Sakapa Rum, so I that's how I cook. Like I cook and mix cocktails. I just and now more and more uh, people are asking me for cocktails. The thing is, you know, uh, Ryan knows very well. My one of my dear friends is it's Lynette Marrero. So I 
I feel like I don't, I, you know, I use her cocktails all the time. Like I ask her for recipes and because I know she understands my flavor. So if I talk to her about what dish am I going to make, she suggests, because I can, I can mix cocktails, no problem, but she obviously takes them to the next level. Um, so I love asking her for inspirations for recipes because she knows my food very well. Uh, and we work together a lot. Um, so it's, it's wonderful. And yeah, as a matter of fact, like, we're going to create like this uh, web series where it's going to be like a Sacapa room where I'm going to bring in mixologists and chefs. So we're going to talk all things um, cocktails and food. But I, I, I agree with Ryan. For me, it's never been a separate thing. It's always been together. And I, I, when I, even when I cook at home just for my guests, I always think about what cocktails I'm going to make them at the beginning of the meal and what are they going to end with? You know, it's not just about wine. I love cocktails. I, I love this industry um, because I love flavors. So for me, it's 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 always been they go hand in hand, and it's all part of 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 an experience of what I like to to give my guests. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think it's it's still about um, you know I I started in kitchens, but at the same time, I'm like I've I've noted this way more since living with Doug is like. I'm not a very good chef. I used to think I could cook and then I've seen what like real excellence can be. But I think, you know, the, the idea of playing to expertise is still is like super crucial. And actually I think Tris, you probably sit pretty like more than a lot of people in that middle ground, you kind of cover wine, beer, whiskey, uh, cocktails and cooking. And you're, you've tight kind of taken all of those experiences and, and you've applied your rigor to each of those different areas. And I think it's a good example of the fact that, you know, it, it's, you know, to go to, to Grace's point before, it's, it's about the curiosity and the care around it. Um, and, and that kind of, like, that's what spurs it on and, and leads to the more exciting avenues than it is about um, kind of dividing the, the world into those, each of those, those spaces. I think we can no longer look at it as something separate. I think that it, it's all about enhancing the experience, right? Especially these days, like, you know, to have the privilege of going out to a restaurant and, and, and or even cooking at home, you want to make it as special as you can. If you can enhance it, just even with shaking up a, a cocktail or a, a beer or, or a specific kind of beer or a wine, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing what it does. Something very, very simple. It can, it can just bring an extra magic to your evening, you know, that, that in something, another talking point, And you're like, Oh, I've, I've never had these two things together. But okay, just to, and I realize we're, we, we need to finish at some point, but just to counter that yeah. slightly, <laughs> like, sure, we can all agree that, you know, anything that goes in the mouth, it's important, right? So, you know, as individuals, we can say, you know, never, you know, there's no, there's never really, really been a distinction. But of course, there is a distinction in most restaurants. The way they're set up is there's a bar and there's a kitchen, and there's not a great deal of communication between those two components. The whole restaurant system, the mechanic, the dynamic, currently in ninety nine point nine percent of restaurants is that way. So. What can we do as chefs, as bartenders, to start sort of breaking down those barriers so that it's not just us that's appreciating the, the glory of flavor in food or drink or beer or wine, but that every single 
customer and guest who goes into a restaurant gets to see this synergy and experience it between bartender, barista, chef? I, I, I mean, that was a big part of what we set up at Cub. You know, we put it physically in the same space, but it was also behind the scenes. It was, you know, everything came out of one little, I mean, it was tiny. Um, but the the idea was more behind the scenes. It was getting the ingredients in and deciding whether we wanted to manifest it as a dish or a drink. And it was that pure synergy of going, we're creating an experience for our guests. It's not about going dish, then drink or pairing or anything like that. It's just about going, you come into the space, we look after you, we feed them water and you make sure you have a fun time. It was seamless. It was about this co-creation. And it felt like, you know, some of the reviews talked about it being like being at the coolest house party you've ever gone to. And so it was, you know, bringing those two worlds together from a creative point of view to me is what what was exciting about it i think it's changing i definitely see it a massive shift at least in new york uh, um and and i and i see it a lot in latin america as well believe it or not like just the mixologists are 100 percent communicating with the kitchen and they're like exactly like ryan says they're co-creating mm-hmm. and that's exciting guys you've been amazing um i couldn't have asked for any more from you um you've both been fantastic thank you so much for coming on thank you both it's It's such a pleasure pleasure to 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 meet you this way (laughs) we'll do another time face to face we'll do it yeah yeah we'll get we'll we'll get get us together face to face in the studio and then we'll go out and have delicious dinner and drinks in a perfect synergized mashing of flavor afterwards yes Thank you, guys. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and uh, it's an honor for me to be here with you both. So thank you. Likewise. Great. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Bar Chat. Visit diageobaracademy.com for access to more podcast episodes and exclusive content. See you next time.